All right, good morning. I want to welcome you to the third session of A Man and His Work. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jim Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Been on staff for a little over seven years now. My wife, Julia, and I have five kids from ages 11 down to zero. We have a newborn. So I was tired before I even got here this morning, right? Um, but glad to be here, and it's my privilege to share with you this morning on the topic of escape. And so let me just tell you, when we were putting together a man and his work curriculum and we kind of had our topics set, we were deciding who was going to teach each topic, and I somehow became the obvious choice to teach on escape. I don't know what that says about me, right? Maybe I'm an expert. Maybe I got a lot of experience in that area. Whatever the case is, you know, Bill, Matt, if you're listening, I'm not offended, in case you were wondering, right? So we're going to talk about escape, and I wanted to show you that Dodge Ram commercial from the Super Bowl. A lot of you probably saw that premiere um, during the Super Bowl, like I did, and if your response was anything similar to mine, um, my jaw went slack a little bit, and my conversation stopped, and I just kind of stared at the screen for a couple minutes because there was something about it that was incredibly appealing to me, right? There's something about farming. There's something about the ideas of hard work, of accomplishment, the difficulty in all of that. There's something about that that resonates with us, resonates with our soul as men because of the way we've been created in God's image to work, to accomplish. It's a fascinating idea. And so when we talk about work, we've given you four definitions, really, to help you think. we got a slide for this. The first one is work, we would say, is energy expended. And what I would tell you is this is not limited to your vocation. It's not limited to your job, right? There's all sorts of areas in your life that require energy from us. So parenting, if you have kids... You know that's difficult, right? It takes energy, takes time, takes hard work. Managing your finances well, taking care of your house, taking care of a car, whatever it is. There's all sorts of areas in life that require energy, and work is that energy expended. Rest, we would say, is energy recovered. And so sleep would be the most intense form of rest, right? But it's a way to regain that energy, to recover. Recreation is energy diverted, And so this could look really different. It could be going out and having coffee with a friend, having coffee with your wife, um, just relaxing. It might mean going on a hike. It might mean going on a bike ride. But whatever that is, it recreates you, re-energizes you, gets you ready to go back to re-engage in work. And then the last category is escape, which is what we're talking about this morning, energy corrupted. And so this does not recharge you, right? After you escape, you're not all excited to go back to work. You're not re-energized. It doesn't really produce anything. It doesn't really accomplish anything. we got a ton to say about that, so I'm going to move fast. But this is going to be recorded. You can go back and pick it up later if you need to. To start off with, when we talk about corruption, we would say corruption is part of the biblical story and is part of our story. Corruption is part of the biblical story, part of our story. We can't just blame Adam and Eve for everything that's wrong, right? We all have a unique personal contribution to the corruption of this world, to the evil in this world, to the frustration that we experience. 
So it's, the, the, it's part of the biblical story, part of our story. We have a personal peace. And if you go back to Genesis 1 and open it up and read, you don't have to read very far to see that this world is corrupted, that sin has entered and messed some things up like Bill was talking about last week. But you look back in Genesis 1 and God created a world that's full of potential. Right? That's, that's why you have all this weird language about you got this tree, it has this kind of seed, it's reproducing according to its kind, the birds are reproducing and multiplying according to their kinds, the fish according to their kinds, that this world is moving, it's moving, it's full of potential, and it had a need. This is what Bill mentioned last week, the earth had a need, so God fashions the man from the earth corresponding to the earth to meet that need. And so man was created to cultivate all of that, to shape all of that, to help it produce things that would glorify God, right? But God didn't just leave him with that. God gave him some instructions. He made him responsible, right? God said, here's how you run this thing. Here's a way to live that's right. Don't do this, right? Adam had a responsibility to communicate those instructions to his wife and to others. And so Genesis 3 Shows us that story of the woman's autonomy. When she saw that the fruit was good, she reached out, she took it, she ate it, right? It's her autonomy. She's stepping forward. It shows us the story of man's passivity because it says he was right there with her. He's right beside her, watching the whole thing go down, right? Not doing anything. He's passive. If that's new language for you, then I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of our previous men's roundtable teaching where we talk about those ideas in a little more detail. But here's what happened. Man failed in his responsibility, right? He couldn't just stay in the garden. He failed in his responsibility with his helper. And so sin entered the world. The world got plunged into chaos. And so ever since the fall, you can open up the scriptures and read about any story in the Bible, and you're going to see corruption, you're going to find it all through the pages of the scriptures. And we each have our own personal contribution. And because of that corruption, there's a frustration to our work, right? It's difficult. It doesn't go the way that it should. And so you can work really, really hard, and you can do lots of things right and put a lot of energy into something. It does not guarantee that it's going to go well for you. Just a personal example I'll give you is a couple of weeks ago, I was out in Colorado at a business conference, and um, a little over four years ago, I was the co-founder of a company, and we had spent the last year modifying this camera to um, shoot in this um, certain type of way. There, there was a little niche in the market, um, that a group of people that we could help. And so we had put a lot of time and energy into developing this product. And then when the speaker, the organizer of this conference out in Colorado heard about it, he said, y'all got to come out and share about that, you know, talk to people about that and bring the camera. And so we did, you know, we bought the plane tickets, lined everything up, went out there. First day of the conference, we get out there and someone who has a little more clout in the industry brought up the same camera, had modified it in almost exactly the same way and was selling it and everybody went crazy. Everybody loved it, right? And then we looked and our names were no longer on the agenda as presenters. And so it was very frustrating, right? You spend a lot of time, you spend a lot of energy, resources to do something, you work hard, it does not guarantee success, okay? It just doesn't. That's part of living and working in a fallen world like Bill talked about last week. And because of that, 
Because of that frustration, that's one of the reasons escape is so appealing, right? You just want to get away. Sometimes you just want to throw in the towel, you want to give up, or you want to kind of become domineering and take over and make things work, right? Makes escape appealing. So when we talk about escape, let me give you a working definition. Escape is when I hide from responsibility. Escape is when I hide from responsibility. And just like Adam hid, you go back and you read Genesis 3, after he sinned, he's in the garden, he's pretending to be a vegetable, right? Here's a man who had just done an incredible job of taxonomy, and now when God comes walking in the garden, he's hiding. He's hiding from the Almighty. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think our intelligence fell on some level after the fall, right? But escape is when I hide from responsibility. It's refusing to accept the fact that I'm responsible, that God made me responsible. It kind of believes this lie that my life can be pleasing to God apart from responsibility, apart from sacrifice on my part. And usually escape takes on two forms, okay? And let, me, let me introduce you to a couple of new Um, words, ways to think about it, nothing special about this. It just kind of cleanses our palate and helps us think. So we got a slide for it. We would say escape usually takes the form of either indolence or exigence. It takes the form of indolence or exigence. All right, now we'll, we'll flesh this out more this morning. But we would say on one side, indolence undervalues work. It's an undervaluing of work and it results in escape from work. The word literally means to avoid activity. It's used as a medical term for a wound that's unresponsive to treatment. It won't heal, right? Treating the wound doesn't really do anything. It doesn't respond. So indolence avoids activity because of a dislike of work. Similar to laziness, that would elevate comfort and pleasure over responsibility. It stems from a proud unbelief that God doesn't reward my work or he will not hold me accountable to provide for other people. And indolence fails to see how my job connects to those 10 big ideas that Matt gave the first week. It doesn't see how my job makes the world better, how it serves other people, how it brings glory to God. Indolence shirks responsibility, runs away from work, seeks the feeling of accomplishment or satisfaction without really having to expend energy, without really having to work hard. On the other side of the spectrum, We have exigence, which would be an overvaluing of work, right? And that that results in escape into work. It overvalues work, results in escape into work. And the word literally means something that's pressing, demanding, critical, or urgent, right? Has to be done. This is the idea of putting too much weight on work. And so workaholism would be on this end of the spectrum. But it's someone who runs towards work, neglecting other responsibilities God has given them, also driven by proud unbelief. It's the belief that God isn't providing what I need, or he's not going to provide what I think I need to take care of my family. What he's given me is not enough. It can be driven out of fear that I won't be able to have the quality of life, the house I want, the house I need, the car I want, without working 60 hours a week every week. It abandons responsibility by running into work. And so this is like Matt's Liberty Bridge analogy, right? Work cannot bear that kind of weight, cannot bear the weight of your soul. And so let me just say, I'm creating some general categories here, right? These are not hard and fast rules. So on one side, I've listed comfort and pleasure. 
as motivations for indolence, but somebody could work really, really hard for 40 years just so they can be indolent in their retirement age, right? That could be a motivator for them. Accomplishment and value, finding your identity in work could be motivators apart from your salary, okay? It's not always about making money. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. <clears throat> but generally speaking, comfort and pleasure would be motives for indolence, while power, affirmation, value, identity would be on the exigent side. But here's what I want you to see. Both of them abandon responsibility, right? Both of them abandon responsibility. So let's look at indolence in a little detail. And the scriptures are full of examples of this, right? You, you don't have to read. It's not very hard to find examples of this. But one story Um, kind of grabbed my attention in particular. It's the story of Onan from Genesis chapter 38. We've got a slide for this, so you don't have to turn there. The story of Onan. Genesis 38, starting in verse 6, it says, In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground as prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother, so the Lord killed him. Took his life too, right? And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard the story of Onan um, used as a way to teach people not to masturbate, right? Especially in youth group. That's how it got used. So much so that Onanism and masturbation are synonyms. Look it up or don't, okay? (laughs) Never mind. Forget I said that. Don't look it up. Don't look it up. But listen, that's not what's happening in this passage. Onan is not masturbating. He's actually having sex. So good for him, right? But to understand this story, you've got to understand Leveret Law. Deuteronomy 25.5 will explain this to us. We've got a slide for it. It says, if two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her, have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of her brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. Okay, that was his responsibility. And that's the problem with his sin. It's not that he's masturbating. It's that he's abandoning responsibility. Now, masturbation is most likely a sin, right? So if you're doing it, you should stop, go listen to Quest for Purity. But that's not what's happening in this passage He is not taking on responsibility. His brother had died, and he had a responsibility, according to the law, to care for her and to make sure his brother's name continued in Israel. But instead, what he did is he took on pleasure without responsibility. Okay, you see that? He didn't mind having sex with her as often as he wanted. But what he didn't want is to be responsible for her and to be responsible for raising a child. Okay, and doing what God had called him to do. Verse 9 says he was unwilling to have a child that would not be his own heir. He didn't want to care for someone. He didn't want to provide for someone that God made him responsible for because it didn't match up with his own interests. And it infuriates God to the point where God simply kills him, just kills him. 
right? Infuriates God. It's a prime example of indolence, someone seeking pleasure above responsibility, all right? But, but here's what I would say. Indolence can take on lots of different forms, right? Let me just give you a few ideas, a few examples of that. In general, it would be characterized by making excuses for work or doing fake work. That's how it abandons responsibility. So disability, welfare, could, be- could become a form of indolence, right? If you just don't want to work, you just want to take a paycheck, but you don't really want to go find a job and expend energy. That's a form of indolence. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if any man will not work, neither will he eat, right? It's a biblical idea. Hobbies can cross the line from recreation into indolence. Now, we're going to talk about recreation in a little more detail in a couple of weeks, but let me give you one example. You ever... Um, you ever drive to work and just turn on sports radio, sports talk, right? And then maybe when you get to work, you leave it on the radio, or when you're coming home, you're listening to sports talk. If you listen to it multiple times a day, here's what you'll discover. It's the same five guys, right? Same five guys. They call in all day long, show after show. I mean, there's not hundreds of people calling in, right? It's half a dozen guys. They're calling in every show. They're criticizing what the announcers are saying because they know all the stats for their favorite teams, right? I mean, going back to the 50s, it's ridiculous. And then they know all the stats for their players from high school, college, professional level. I mean, it's amazing how much time they must have spent in school studying that, right? But it's the same guys calling in day after day, show after show. That is a form of indolence. You say, how's that? because they're putting all this energy into something that doesn't really matter. It's not really accomplishing anything, right? It's not really producing anything. It's a form of escape for them. They become an expert on something, and if they have a job, they go to that job and they're a bump on the log. They're not really bringing any of that energy to their employer. All that energy is bleeding off into another area. They become an expert on something that doesn't really make a difference in the world, doesn't really accomplish anything. It doesn't really matter, okay? <clears throat> let, me give you, um, let me give you a real practical example that guys in my age group, um, mid to late 30s, fall into all the time, okay? It's video games. It's World of Warcraft. It's Call of Duty, right? And if you don't know what those words are, good for you. You're in a good spot, right? We'll talk about exigence in a little while. But it's video games. And as men, because we are made in God's image, because we are wired up to accomplish and achieve, that's a need in our soul, video games become a substitute for that. In a similar way that pornography becomes a substitute for intimacy. You have an intimacy need, right? But instead of channeling that energy into your marriage towards your spouse, that gets channeled into pornography and masturbation, right? Video games, same thing. Instead of going out in the real world and accomplishing and bringing all that energy into my job or or my vocation, then I bleed that energy off into a video game. And it feels like it meets a need in my soul, right? Because I feel like I've accomplished something. That pursuing, that protecting, that providing energy gets channeled into that way. And so I was watching, um, I was watching Monday Night Football last, last year, stayed up late and watched a, watched a game with my dad. And I noticed it was like 11.15 at night, 
And every commercial that came on was for a video game. It was like for Halo 4 or the new Call of Duty game. And I thought to myself, man, whoever purchased airtime is an idiot because there's not really any 14-year-old boys staying up late and watching pro football, right? Come to find out, you know what the average age of the video game player is? It's 37, 37 years old. They're not idiots. They knew exactly who they were marketing to, all right? It's a form of indolence, a form of false work, false accomplishment. And so I'll just, I'll just tell you, this past year, I sat in a counseling meeting where um, the wife was leaving the husband. She's done. Taking their two kids, moving to mama's house, right? And the reason she was doing that is because her husband spent about 40 to 45 hours a week playing World of Warcraft. He couldn't stop, couldn't get out of it. So he had a full-time job. You know, he was working 40 hours a week, but he'd come home, scarf down dinner while she puts the kids to bed, and he would play until about midnight, 1 a.m., get up to do it all again, play all day Saturday, all day Sunday. But he'd put all this energy into building this virtual character, right? It's a virtual accomplishment. And it, was, it felt like it was meeting a need for him, but it's not really accomplishing anything. It's a form of indolence. So how do you know when it crosses the line? How do you know when golf or hunting or fishing or going to the lake or playing video games, how do you know when it crosses the line? Watching too much football. How do you know? Let me give you a couple questions to ask, okay? Do you come back energized and ready to work? Do you come back ready to re-engage and get back to work? If you don't, you've probably escaped. Do you know more than all the people around you about a subject that's unrelated to your vocation and doesn't really help anybody? Okay, if that's true of you, that's probably a form of indolence, a form of escape for you. All right, just a couple questions to ask yourself. All right, now on the other side, let's talk about exigence in a little detail. Exigence, like we said, overvalues work. It's an overvaluing of work that results in escape into work. Let me give you an example from the scriptures. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We have slides for this. We got it on the screen. Most likely the words of Solomon, who accomplished an incredible amount. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting at verse 4, he says this. I also tried to find meaning. Okay, don't miss that. I tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves, bought slaves, both men and women. Others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold. Okay, lots of money. The treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure, even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So here's a man, probably accomplished more than any other man on earth. Probably had more power, more resources than anyone else on earth. 
right? He could, he could buy whatever his heart desired, whatever he wanted to build, whatever he wanted to accomplish. He had the freedom and the power to do that. He worked really, really hard. He created some amazing things that people all over the world came to see. But where did it lead him? Skip down to verse 18. He says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? So a couple things we can learn from this passage, really quickly, really easily, right? There's an end to your life. We all got the same thing coming, right? We're all going to die. One day it's all going to end. And nothing that we can accomplish can prevent that. Nothing we can accomplish can prevent that. All your accomplishment is going to end just like your life will end. And then once your life ends, there's more frustration, right? Because you have no control over how your accomplishments are used. You could go out and do something really, really great for the world, right? And make a lot of money, millions of dollars. Well, guess what? You have no say over who comes behind you and takes those resources, and maybe they'll use them in a wise way. Maybe they're going to squander it like a fool. You have no control over that. You don't know. You don't know whether what you accomplish is going to be used for good, it's going to be pleasing to God, glorifying to Him, or if it's going to be squandered and used in a, in a harmful way. And so work and accomplishment cannot bring ultimate meaning, cannot bring enduring life, 